Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Welcome to today's episode with retired Metropolitan Homicide Detective Colin Sutton. Now, it may feel like we are going slightly off topic, but Catherine and I would argue that Colin has done his fair share of stopping the killing in his career. And after hearing this episode, we think you'll agree. I'm Colin Sutton. I was a senior investigating officer in the Metropolitan Police, so that means I was in charge of one of the murder squads in London. I had a couple of high-profile cases towards the end, which kind of got me in touch with the media, shall we say. So when I retired uh, 11 years ago now, 12 years ago, 12 years ago, good Lord, and I started working in TV, doing a bit of of crime punditry, and I was writing a book about one of the investigations, and that got published and got made into a drama for ITV, one of the, the main channels in the UK. With Martin Clunes, who I think some American people will be familiar with him in the role of Doc Martin. It's quite popular over there. And he played me, which was uh, interesting. And then I wrote another book about another investigation, and that got made into Manhunt 2, the second season. And then I started making documentaries about murder cases and crimes cases, mostly mine, but now I've kind of run out of interesting ones, so we're doing other people's. But we've just finished filming the third season of Bat for Sky over here. Did you ever want to have anyone in particular play you? Like before Martin Clunes came onto mm. the screen, were you thinking Brad Pitt? Yeah, obviously all those, George Clooney maybe. <laughs> we couldn't do it in the drama because it kind of didn't work because somebody else was playing it. But I think it's in my first book. There was a day when we had a, a social thing at, at work and I got to it late and I was sort of two or three drinks behind everyone. And they got me a drink and I sat down and one of the DC said to me, right, governor, says we've been having a discussion when they make the film of this investigation who would you like to play you and as i thought about it with perfect comic timing he came back and said given that john candy is dead (laughs) which is funny and yeah but no i mean it was a a kind of assuring for martin really it's quite interesting he jointly owns a production company with his wife and it was that company and her that first wanted to make my book into the drama Uh, and when the very first meeting we had she said Martin won't want to play this because he's always said he never wants to play a cop. He doesn't like the way cops are portrayed in drama. But of course, when we got together the first episode and sent it to the production company, he saw the script and said, I want to do that. And so I was delighted because he's a very, very talented actor. Uh, and of course, I had to spend some time with him. He's a really nice chap as well, you know, and we had good fun both before and afterwards and we keep in touch. How closely do you think he has captured the essence of Colin Sutton? Yeah, I, I think in in the first season, certainly, you know, friends and family were saying, he's really got you, he's got your mannerisms, he's got your way of speaking and that sort of thing. The only sort of snag that I thought with it was that he actually played it too straight. 
I don't know. I've got quite a happy go lucky sort of attitude, I suppose. And, uh, you know, I, I, I like to smile and make people smile and smile myself. And the, I think it was just a little bit too serious. And I told him this and, uh, he certainly remedied that. And it was the, the second one, I think was, was absolutely bang on. No, I could almost see myself there. So it's ironic really. She's, she's, you know, made his name, I suppose, in the UK for playing, you know, comic roles, but obviously, you know, he, he spent about eight hours with me in total before the first season and nailed it, you know, so yeah, it's a really talented man. He was trying to be a serious police officer, I guess, huh? Yeah, I guess so. But I mean, you'll know, Catherine, that, you know, it's not like that, is it? You know, we deal with serious things all the time yeah. and there's that, you know, everyone says, oh yeah, there's a black humor in it. Well, yeah, there is, but just general sort of, you know, camaraderie between people. It's part of that team work and team building. The getting along and you got to bond with people who can take yeah. anything and give anything. And that involves a lot of laughter, I think. Yeah, it does. You know, I, I had a team to lead as well. And people will work for somebody they're frightened of, but they work better for somebody they get along with. And it also meant that on the rare occasions when I did have to thump the desk and shout, then they knew I meant it. It wasn't an everyday right. occurrence, you know? I can imagine you would be an imposing figure if you were yelling at people all the time. Did you always want to be a detective? No. What was no, it? I always wanted to be a police officer. Right. But my father's a police officer. My great-grandfather was a police officer. My son's a police officer. It's kind of in the blood. Yeah. In fact, the first three of us all served at the same station. And when you're a probationer, in your first two years, you had then to do a an attachment with all the various different branches to see what went on. And one of those was the CID, which was two weeks. I managed to avoid it. I was always too busy or on holiday or something. I did, however, do it with the traffic police. And I had the absolute pleasure one day of doing a shift on duty with my dad. Which not oh my goodness, that's do. amazing. Yeah, it was just amazing. Yeah, he was driving. I was working the radio and we did eight hours together. What a memory. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. I know, I know. It's, yeah, I was really fortunate that his career overlapped mine to that degree and it enabled us to do that. So no, so I didn't want to be a detective. I, I just wanted to be the best street policeman I could, really. Well, we've danced around the book, the TV series, but yeah. for our listeners that haven't had the pleasure yeah. of either reading Manhunt, the book, or seeing the TV program, would you be able to give us a thumbnail of the case in the first yeah. episode, which is the Levi Belfield case? Yes. I mean, so having accidentally become a detective almost, I, I ended up realizing that being a leading murder investigations was something that I really wanted to do. I'd not been doing it that long when a, a young French student who was in London was battered on the head on Twickenham Green. Now, Twickenham Green's a really sort of safe, quiet, middle-class almost part of London and not the sort of place we were used to working at all. And it was all a bit sort of off the wall that, that this 22-year-old woman had been just murdered by being hit on the head from behind once or twice. And it came to me to solve it. We were not expecting a new case and certainly one that, that obviously was going to be as difficult as this because from the very start, it was going to be in what I call the, the sort of one or 2% of cases. So what I mean by that is that most murders are actually, certainly in the UK, are committed by people who know each other. Right, They're not yeah. planned. They happen as a result of an argument or of a, a fight or something, getting drunk or drunk. And that means that the people who are committing them aren't careful. They don't think about forensics and DNA and CCTV and 
cell phone data and all the other wonderful things that we can do now. And so that's why the murder detection rate is still, still even in these times, you know, above 80%. It was, it was often above 90% because murder being still thought was the ultimate crime, even in these days of restricted budgets and restricted sort of resources, everything is thrown at murders. And if you throw enough detectives and enough forensic work at any crime, you can solve it. You just can't do that for every volume crime, you know. But there's this one or two percent at the end where people have gone out intending to murder and where they are trying not to get caught. And they're the really difficult ones, you know. They're the ones that, sadly, the rare instances of serial killers and so forth fit into that category because they're going out on a mission to murder rather than just for a night out that ends in murder. And this was obviously going to be one of those. And we got a, a break in that the local buses, they'd all been fitted with CCTV within the last three weeks. And they had all these cameras and they were called into hard drive and they were good quality and all timed properly. So we, we Oh my gosh, to, what yeah. an amazing coincidence. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's always a thought and we don't know, she never talks to us, but the Belfield actually thought that that area was a good place to operate because of the lack of CCTV. It's like a big triangular green with a, mm. a cricket pitch on one end and, and trees and just some shops on one side. So it's a very sort of residential, it nice is. sort of area. And Emily had missed a stop on the bus and got off and decided to walk back. And if she'd waited for a bus to come the other way, it would have been someone else. So it might not have been anybody, you know. But yeah, so we had this break with all these bus CCTVs and we were able to find this van that was acting suspiciously in the area. It was kind of driving round and round and round in a very tight area for about three quarters of an hour. And then we matched that up with some information that one of Belfield's previous partners had given to us amongst 120 odd other women that had come forward and said, you need to look at my ex-partner, my ex-husband, in some cases, my husband, my partner now. Um, oh. but she was one of them and she mentioned a white van and it all kind of fell together like that. But there was no scientific evidence. There was no DNA. There were no fingerprints. There were no blood traces. There were no fibers, all the other sort of clever things that we can do. We never had. So what we did was when we arrested him, which was about three months after the offense, we had his current partner and two former partners come forward to say that they had been badly abused, sexually assaulted, raped during the, the times of their relationships with him. And he was charged with nine offenses against them. And they were kind of our holding charges, as awful as they are. You know, I, I make this point that those offenses have never been tried before court. He was charged with them. And then wow. once he was convicted of the murders, they were just left on file, as they call it, because the thinking being that he's not going to get anything more for those than he got for the murders, which is true. But if you look at six offences of rape and three offences of assault against three different women, that's not important enough to proceed with. He kind of shows you who he is and the kind of things that he has been committed on. But that took the pressure off a bit because we knew he was off the streets. Because the one definite thing was, was he wouldn't stop until he was arrested. You know, that was the overriding thing for me every single day was, is this going to be the day when he does another one? You know, I know what you mean about that pressure to get it done. I was here working as a terrorism supervisor during 9-11. You felt like you couldn't go home because something else might happen and you might be able to catch the person if you just worked a little bit longer. I think that's a hard thing to explain to people, but that is how you feel like yeah. is law enforcement. You have the tools that other people don't have. And the idea that you might go home to dinner and somebody commits a crime is 
it's just an overwhelming feeling. And I'm sure I could see how that built up. You had a subject who committed crimes and many times we don't see that escalation in somebody who's like a serial rapist or a serial abuser. Did you feel like it was escalation? Maybe something happened in one particular instance that turned him from this type of crime comfort level to this type. Yeah. I mean, I tried to get help to understand it from those who have studied, you know, killers and murderers and criminals. The best way I probably can describe it, I, I remember when I was doing about it to my colleagues during the investigation, I had a slide, uh, I called it the wagon wheel slide. So I had a picture of him in the middle and then spokes coming off with all the different crime types that he was involved in. And there were many. And these blitz attacks, we think to the best of our, what we can work out is that we think he would approach lone women and chat them up out the window of the car. And sometimes they'd say yes and get in, you know, and, and then they'd end up getting drugged because he was using GHB and he was using before that ketamine mm-hmm. to affect rapes. And, and I think probably, you know, as, as Sarah will tell you, there are lots of nice middle-class young ladies around in Twickenham and uh, the, yeah. the surrounding places. Yeah. Well, what I would say was he found more success in that method when he was on his own turf than when he moved into places like that. And I think in those places like that, he was told to go away or less politely, more often than not. And uh-huh. that triggered something with him and that he then, they were the ones that he would go and lie and wait for and he would attack. And we think this for two reasons. One is because the CCTV enabled us to track Amelie's path back up from the bus stop to where she got killed. And she was walking slowly, but at an even pace for almost all of that journey of about half a mile, except after we know Belfield drove past her in the van. And she slows down really noticeably, really appreciably at that point. And of course, the explanation of that problem is that she was stationary for 30 seconds or so because she was talking to him. So it took her longer to get to the next camera. And the other thing that became obvious as soon as we started digging around similar offences is that there was a spike of these blitz attacks on women within a three or four mile radius of where Amelie was found. And some of those had survived, three or four of them had survived. And all of them had absolutely no recollection for about 15 or 20 minutes before they were attacked. They kind of wiped down. The medical people explained it to me that like with a computer, you've got a hard drive, but you've also got your memory and things go into the memory. And then if you want to save them, they get written to the hard drive where the brain works like that. And a savage mm-hmm. blow to the head that they had kind of erases that flash memory and it's not written to the hard drive of the brain. So yeah, there were women who had horrible injuries because the ones that survived all fell forwards and fell on unprotected forms onto their faces. And so we were in the realms of, you know, massive reconstructed surgery to jaw bones and eye sockets. And they couldn't remember anything, but they all stopped once he was arrested. One, you know, two, the geographical profiling of where these offenses took place was classic. And while I had my kind of reservations about criminal psychology, as a tool for investigators when the suspect is not known, I don't have those misgivings about geographic profiling. I think I've seen too much of it where looking at where people offend compared to where they live, where they've brought up, where they've worked, where they're familiar, 
there is something to it. You know, people do that. And it's human nature, isn't it? You operate where you feel safe. You operate where you know the escape route. So you know, we see that with mass murders in the United States. And people always say, oh, he just randomly went here. And there's very rarely a just randomly. People shoot up where they're familiar with. People commit crimes where they're familiar with. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was so classic. A guy called Colin Johnson, who was a police officer over here, who was a kind of disciple of Kim Rosimo, you've probably heard of, who kind of founded the, the theory of uh, geographical profiling. And he said to me that when they loaded Belfield's data onto the database they had it in London at Scotland Yard, it kind of upped the ante for everybody else because it was so classic and so fitted with the theories that it kind of made all the others look wishy-washy. Just as, as an example, what on Thames, which is in Surrey, just a bridge over the River Thames, and there's a public area down beneath it. Not only was that, you know, half a mile or so from where he abducted and then later killed Millie Dowler, but under that bridge of that public sort of access to the river, he had thrown Amelie's belongings into the River Thames. He'd raped not one but two of his partners under that bridge in a car. And he and his friends used to go down there and throw eggs at the passing rowers. And he did all this all in one place because he felt safe there. I think geographical profiling had a lot to it. And also when it came to you know, the other big case that I did really, with the Night Stalker again, when you looked at the geographical, once we knew who he was, it all kind of made sense as to where he'd been working. When you say classic geographical profiling, you know, if you were looking at Levi Belfry, or yeah. what are the obvious signs? Well, I, I, I mean, I'm no expert in it. I'm just an enthusiastic um, user of it, I suppose I was. But the theory goes that people will tend to commit crimes in places where they are comfortable, where they have what they call anchor points. So they will have worked there. They've been to school or college there. They've had a relationship there. They've lived there. They've socialized there. And that if they're going to embark on a, a series or a spree of crimes, then they are more likely to go to such places because of the comfort. You know, they're doing something that they're quite worried about, I suppose. And so they want to be somewhere where they're comfortable in surroundings. They want to know where the roads are and how to get to and from it easily. So the theory is if you've got a, a series of offences in a largish but defined area, then by looking at those and the, the connections, it can be possible to predict where within that area the suspect might live, work, socialise, etc. Opposite of you don't shit in your own backyard. Yes, you do. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's interesting, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's a misconception it, it, there. It really is. And, you know, like with the Night Stalker, he had a fave atm that he would use he'd been going off so long terrorizing and stealing from these old people that he was burgling he got to have to ask them for their pin for their cards because they didn't get paid their state pensions in cash anymore as they had when he started he had a favorite cash machine that we put cameras on and all, all we got was pictures of him masked up we still couldn't see who he was but actually it was within probably as a crow flies probably 250 yards of his street where he lived but there was a railway line in between and i think part of it is that he sees that as a physical barrier that's enough to separate him from where he lives it really is a fascinating subject i think yeah and useful it, you know i put a guy in jail uh, once who was sending anthrax threats to people right. and although he worked in five counties which is a pretty big area eventually he circled back we knew that he was mailing the letters 
And when we finally were able to arrest him, it was because we surveilled the mailboxes and we managed to get him walking half a block to a mailbox. And he dropped the letter in and the letter carriers opened the box up and they said, this looks like this guy's handwriting. We didn't know the person, but we knew what we were looking for. And when we had two letters uh, that were attacking similar locations, my view was he's going home. He's going home. And in fact, that's exactly it. One of the last places that he sent a letter to was like a place where he'd gone to school nearby. Yeah. Yeah. It's about understanding people. Yeah. What's the most likely thing that he or she would have done in these circumstances? Okay. Let's see if they did. You imagine they're these mastermind criminals, but actually they sound as lazy as, you know, me. They're not going out of their way to cover their tracks. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it? Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything, from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. Do you think these were planned Systematic attacks, or were they opportunist attacks? Belfield certainly went out with the intention of getting a woman, I think. Right. But he was also prepared for the fact that if they didn't react in the way he wanted them to and dared to turn him down, then he would be 
assaulting them. So, for example, he would go out to do it and he would switch his mobile phone off religiously. Another sort of branch of investigation that I have great faith in is intelligence analysis. But if you looked at his cell phone usage, his cell phone usage would be pretty constant. He was quite a voracious user of it. And then it would drop off and you'd have these holes in the graph, if you like, and we could relate those holes to when he committed offences. So it was obvious he was going out with the intention of offending because he switched his phone off. Mm-hmm. And actually that was so dramatic and so sort of obvious from the data that we used that evidentially. Right. Yeah, that's to, fascinating. As I said, there was no forensic, no DNA, fingerprint, blood, fibres. Circumstantial? It, it was circumstantial and it was just putting together piece after piece after piece of evidence over a three and a half year period that became the overwhelming and the compelling case. And part of that was this analysis of his telephone saying every single time this man turns his phone off, a lady gets hit on the back of the head. Well, I want to hear the story about the data analysis that was wrong in your other case. This is a guy who'd been breaking into old people's homes. The youngest victim was 68. The oldest was 94. Over a period of at least 17 years, he would occasionally rape them. He would often sexually assault them and he would almost always assault them because he would break in and wake them up by kneeling across them in bed, having removed light bulbs or turned the electric off and shining a torch in their face. And he's all masked up. So in your 80s, you get this black figure waking you up like that and asking for money. It was a shocking, truly shocking case. The problem was, was that the investigation wasn't resourced properly in terms of staffing. Oh my. When I went over to, to do a review for two weeks, ha ha, because I never left there, I didn't realize until I got there, it was a half-sized team to support. And they were sometimes dealing with five cases a night and they couldn't cope. And because they couldn't cope, rather than somebody shouting out and saying, oh, we can't cope, we need more people because cops don't like to do that. They formed a way of distinguishing out reported offences. So they would say, oh yeah, he's, he's an old person, it's in the night, but he didn't cut the phone wires or he didn't take the light bulbs out. Can't be ours, back to you, to the station. Oh no, so, that hurts my head. Yeah, so when I went to, you're like this bit though, Catherine, the way we were going to catch this guy, do it on intelligence analysis and surveil where we thought he might miss another one, which is how we got him in the end. I wanted the analysis done on every possible offence, not just the offences that the team had taken on. And with great trepidation, I went in to see the analyst. He was a senior analyst, a really good guy called Richard Moore. And I went in to see him and said, Richard, you're not going to like this because this is a, a shed load of work for you. But I think we need an analysis of every possible case, all the ones we've given back to the boroughs, the divisions to deal with. We need to include them. And he leant down, opened his bottom drawer and brought out a stack of paper wow. about so big and said, that's exactly my thinking, sir. He says, I- I've been doing this off the books for the last four years. Mm-hmm. Because he said, I-, I-, I hoped that someday somebody like you would come in here and ask me for it. So on your cases, you said there was a little awry on the statistics in your terrible night stalker there. Are there things that the public just doesn't know about that subject? I mean, in terms of the big things that went wrong, you know, officers were disciplined because he should have been arrested 10 years before he was and the mistakes were made and there was a proper investigation into that. But nobody got on the front foot to explain exactly how difficult this was. And it was. 
I don't think there's been a public understanding of just how under-resourced that investigation was. I think there's a lot of it was to do with the fact that the victim profile, I think if these had all been 25-year-old women mm-hmm. that had been attacked rather than 75-year-old or 85-year-old, that it would have been a bigger thing. I honestly believe that. And perhaps it just was wow. not getting much closer to that stage of my age than I am the other one. But I, I, I just think that there are a generation who didn't have the ability to be recognized as a victim group like that. And also, some of them, they were very uncomfortable about talking what happened to them. I'm sure, I, I just know that some of those victims that are logged just as burglars will have been sexually assaulted or even raped because they wouldn't talk about it. They didn't like to tell us about it. And don't forget, we're talking here about, I think it was 204 offences that were officially accepted as being down to this man. How many do you think he did? I think double that, at least. I've got good evidence that he started earlier. I've got good evidence he did some with another man in the 80s. Has he ever been caught in that time at all, has done any time? Yeah, he had. Back in the 90s, his last conviction was in the 90s for check fraud. So he'd never had his DNA taken, which is why he didn't care about leaving his DNA. Not only doing the raping, but he threw a glove away that had DNA in it. In another case, he took a drink from a carton of orange juice that was in the fridge and the occupier realized that the volume had gone down. And interestingly, this was one of the cases they sent back to the borough. No way. It didn't. No. Yeah. 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 So this woman who was the victim, who was 80 odd, had her 62 year old son temporarily staying with her. And the theory was that he never attacked houses with more than one occupant. So because of that, it was originally sent back to the borough. Unfortunately, the borough scenes a crime officer swabbed the top of this orange carton, got the DNA profile, which was a complete match to the profile from the rapes. We had another one that, uh, again, in his 80s, a man, because Dora Grant attacked men as well sometimes and indecently assaulted them sometimes. This guy, he was a Polish national originally, and he'd been an interpreter or a translator during the Second World War and worked at Bleshley Park in the outbreaking thing. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 And he was unlucky because he lost £3,000 that he had in a bag in a wardrobe. He found it. And he said to good thing was he didn't find it the first time. And I said, what do you mean by that? He says, what? Oh, he's, oh he's, he's the second time he's burgled with this guy. Same guy. Oh, I said, oh, really? And of course, when we look into it, what happened? The first one, male victim, not a female not night stalker back to the division. Wow. It was all the vindication I needed to say, you know, this is how we should be doing it rather than the way it was being done. Wow. Oh, you must have been so angry. I feel very sad about it. I mean, if you watch the drama, the bit in the drama that's the, the saddest part of that, and probably one of the saddest moments I experienced in my career was the oldest victim. She was 94 and she used to sit in a rocking chair inside her front door listening to the radio and she'd crochet herself these blankets and she'd, she'd pull them up and she couldn't face going up the stairs because she wasn't feeling well that day so she'd often sleep there and she was burgled by him and he spoke to her it was a weird thing he did you know most burglars if they wake somebody up they run a mile don't they but he would actually wake people up and talk to them i mean it's really bizarre behavior that's so strange yeah 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 by this time i've been given the gig as it were i'm senior investigating officer for this case and I said, you know, we need to make sure if there's any chance at all 
one of these old people is going to be so shocked by it that they're going to die and we're looking at a homicide investigation that we do all the things we should do around that. Yeah. And I've got a phone call saying, we've got this very old lady. She's very, very frail. And I think it might be one that we need to do all this with. So I went down and I spoke to her and the wonderful family liaison officers that I had, they were sitting there talking to her and they introduced me and said, oh, I called her Ellen after my grandmother, but that wasn't her name, but they said, oh, Ellen, this is Mr. Sutton. She's our boss. And I went in and she extended her hand and I thought she wanted to shake hands. And I said, hello, Ellen. She said, oh, hello, Mr. Sutton. And she put her hand out. And when I took it, she grabbed it with the other hand in the way that old people sometimes do to talk to you and then mm-hmm. pulled it towards herself to pull me down. And, and yeah, she was so frail. She couldn't have pulled me down if I hadn't wanted to, but of course I went with her and she whispered into my ear and she just said, Colin, he interfered with me, you know. Oh. And oh. He, she hadn't told these two women officers that had been with her. I was the first person she'd told that to. And. I just wanted to cry. I just, you know, people say to me often, do you ever have sort of feelings of violence or anger with the people you've had to deal with? And I say, no, apart from that one point, you know, I would have cheerfully strangled the Night Stalker there and then. And the sad postscript to this is that she never ate a thing from that day onwards. And six weeks later, she was dead. He had killed her just as surely as if he'd stabbed her or shot her. I'm then talking to her family saying, look, you know, the causation isn't there. We can't do it. We can't charge him with killing your mother, although we know that he did kill her. It's one of the real, yeah, just absolute standout moments of my whole career that I've never felt so helpless and desolate with somebody who I'm, I'm trying to help. The next decision I had to make then was, we don't know what this interfering is. We should take her to the rape suite to be examined. And I'm thinking she's so frail. She's 94 years old. You know, and I say this about rape generally, that, that there is no way around it. You can have as many fluffy cushions and nice pink and green walls and bunches of flowers in the places where we do it. But if you've just been through what hopefully it will be the most appalling, moving, terrible episode of your entire life, we cannot progress a prosecution for that unless we take you and put you through another one immediately afterwards. Right. Yeah. And there's no way around that. You can't square that circle because you need the evidence. And so I have to think, what are we really going to gain from just taking this woman to the suite, having her internally examined and swapped and taking on her clothing and all that that's going to go on. And I just thought, well, do you know what? When we find this man, we've got ample DNA convicting strong, 100% evidence of him raping four other people. This is not actually going to make any difference to that sentence. And oh. I'm not prepared to put this old lady through that. So I just made the decision and said, no, we're not going to do that. We're just going to take her on her word. And, you know, I'm sure there'll be colleagues who will say, no, you should have done. And perhaps I should have done, but I kind of felt happy that I'd done my best not to put her through another ordeal in, in what turned out to be the last six weeks of her life. You know, for that to be your last investigation of your career was memorable, should we say, you know, because there were so many aspects of it that I'd never considered in the preceding 28 years. And when we did the drama, they indulged me to try and make it as authentic as possible. 
And there's a scene in that which, which happened where I'm, Martin, I'm sitting with the relation officer and we've just been speaking to a victim. And we're sitting talking about it and there were just all these old elderly ladies and men wandering about in front of us. And we just sat and watched them for a minute. And it was the realization then of, of what we'd been doing and who we'd been fighting for. And it, it was a really poignant moment when it happened. One of the big takeaways for, from that series was not just how evil he was or how good the investigation became or whatever. It was, there's this whole group of people that are vulnerable and we don't do enough for them. And I think that was a really important point to make. So everybody go out and hug your grandmother. Yeah. If he's lucky enough still to have one, go and hug her. Yeah. The bad news is that's all we've got time for this episode. But the good news, that was only part one of our conversation with the icon that is Colin Sutton. So join us next week for part two. But if you can't wait, you can head straight on over to Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button and you'll get access to part two of the Colin Sutton episode right away. And of course, if you want to weigh in on the discussion whether John Candy would have been an excellent sub for Martin Clunes playing Colin Sutton, then go over to patreon.com and you can see the full video version there. And I've got a little picture of John Candy up right beside his face. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to Community Podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, Please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it. Because it will happen. And it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. 
Hi, this is Amy and Vanessa from She Goes by Jane, where we shine light on the stories of missing and unidentified women. On November 7th, we're sharing Nahida's story for the first time in a podcast. And this is a story that I thought I knew, but after reading police reports, became more complicated than I thought. When investigators are called to Nahida Khatib's house, everything looks fine. Her purse is on the kitchen table, her cup of coffee is on the counter, and her two-year-old niece is in her playpen. The only thing amiss? Nahida is missing. Every week, we feature a poem written in honor of the person we're talking about. This week, we're joined by one of our favorite actresses. You might know her from Sister Act or King of the Hill or The Descendants. But if you're like us, you'll know her from Hocus Pocus. She's the much-beloved Kathy Najimy. Join us November 7th to hear Nahida's story.